Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Well, last week we began looking at the first chapter of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And last week um, we, we began with the ascension of Jesus, and now for the next eight weeks we're going to be in the Acts of the Apostles. But even now I can hear the voice of one of my seminary professors saying, this book is poorly titled. Instead it should be the Acts, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, it should be the Acts of Jesus. He would say, for although it is they who move, it is Jesus who acts in this book. He'd then point to Acts 1-1, where the author, uh, Luke, he writes, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What is Luke's former book, students? Luke, yes, the Gospel of Luke. Luke Acts was originally a a unified two-part work written by Luke, a companion to Paul. Um, Luke's Gospel covers birth, life, uh, death, resurrection, and then Acts covers the mission of Jesus through the early church. Together, they take up one-fourth of your New Testament. So if the Gospel of Luke is Luke's writing about what Jesus began to do, the book of Acts is what Jesus, risen and ascended, now continues to do, the Acts of Jesus. Now, the obvious question is how. How does Jesus act if he is not physically present? And the answer is Pentecost. Pentecost sits alongside Christmas in terms of significance for the church. This is a very significant day in the life of the church. Christmas marks the birth of Jesus. Pentecost, it said, marks the birth of his church. So as we read of these events of Pentecost, these strange, strange events, let's join with the crowds who ask in verse 12, what does this mean? That's the simple question. What does this mean? Do you know what Pentecost really means? I'll try to keep it to three things. It means a new wine, it means a new people, and it means a new Moses. Let's begin with the wine. In verse 4, we read that all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the immediate result of this filling is that they begin boldly and miraculously declaring the great acts of God throughout history in languages they themselves don't know, but others listening to them know. Some were amazed, and then others mocked. Verse 13, some made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Fair enough. They were acting quite strangely. Too much wine makes people act strangely. Reasonable hypothesis. In fact, some of the effects of the Holy Spirit and the effects of too much wine are quite similar. For example, boldness to a potentially very hostile crowd. What does Peter do? He stands up and says, listen to me. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And he proceeds to share the gospel, the great risk to his own life. See, the Holy Spirit, like wine, emboldens. It emboldens Peter, but in a quite different way. Too much wine depresses, dulls the person. That's why they're bold. Too much Holy Spirit fills the person and sharpens them, frees them, clarifies them. So like Peter... If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the obvious effects is we become quite bold in our life in speaking about Jesus. How does this work? Well, when you order a beer, for example, at Odell's Brewing Company or wherever you are, you order an IPA on draft, the bartender tilts the glass a little bit, it begins to fill, and usually just a little bit overflows, doesn't it, at the brim? Because what fills us naturally overflows, doesn't it? So what fills us? Let's look at these two symbols in verses 2 and 3. A violent wind from heaven and tongues of fire. 
This clarifies what exactly the Holy Spirit is and who he is. Wind. The Greek pneuma can be at once translated as wind. What else? Anyone know? Breath and spirit. So it's as if God the Father and God the Son breathe upon those gathered. It's experienced as a strong and violent wind and its result is a filling of the Holy Spirit. It's like, like chalices overflowing with this new wine. Have you ever been caught in a windstorm? I grew up in, in Iowa. I am not unfamiliar with the effects of a violent wind. It can, it can pick up entire fields, turn towns upside down. I mean, I just had a giant 60-foot evergreen in my yard fall a couple months ago from the wind. Wind is powerful. It's also an outside power, isn't it? 2015, Barna poll aimed at discovering America's moral code offered six sacred values. Here's what Americans' sacred values are. The first and the highest was this. The best way to find yourself is to look within. 91% of U.S. adults agreed. The best way to find yourself is to look within. And 76% of practicing Christians who agreed, they really should have known better. Because here, Christianity and culture are, are at tension. Obviously, the culture says power comes from within. You must work hard to get in touch with it, cultivate it, express it, and, and even rapidly defend it if it's threatened. Ultimately, it doesn't work. Why? Well, I think because there's nothing within us that is powerful enough to actually fill us. Christians say that true power, the power of God, comes from without. Why did Jesus, what, what did Jesus tell the disciples to do before he left? Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift. So the disciples obey, they wait, and they receive. They are filled with wine that emboldens, that satisfies, and as we read throughout the book of Acts, vivifies them for a life of purpose and love and sacrifice and mission. Now, many years ago, a Catholic author stood on his little box in Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. He was talking about the power of God that's evident in creation for all to hear, and one heckler objected. The heckler said, I could make a better universe than your God. To which the Catholic speaker retorted, I won't ask you to make a universe, but would you mind making a rabbit just to establish confidence? <laughs> we, we don't have the power within ourselves that we need. He does. The same power that, that hovered over the waters of creation can be poured into you. It can bring you new life. You can receive it as a gift. So don't look within to find it. Look to Jesus. Well, what fills us? First, wind, an outside power from heaven. The second symbol here is fire. Divided tongues of fire came to rest on each of them, we read. Fire. You know, from their first footsteps as a people out of Egypt, God's glorious, fiery presence was with Israel. It had been the thing that really made them as a people. No presence of God, no people of God. Moses put it plainly, Exodus 33, speaking to Yahweh, Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us. What else will distinguish us from, from the other people on the face of the earth? It's your presence that makes us a people. You know, it was a fiery bush out of which God spoke to Moses. It was a pillar of fire by night that God led Israel through the wilderness. It was a cloud of fiery glory that rested atop the mountain of Sinai, left Moses' face shining, transformed. It was the same fiery glory that filled the tabernacle and then the temple with God's presence fire. And then finally, at the lowest point, the, the lowest point of Israel's downward trajectory as a nation, it was this fiery glory cloud that abandoned the temple in Ezekiel 10. 
God had sent his relentlessly disobedient people into exile, and his presence left. Now, in honor of the nuggets, I'll use a sports analogy here. Ezekiel 10 is it's my sleeper pick for the Old Testament MVP. It's not many of us pay attention to it. If I asked you, what's in Ezekiel 10? Most of you would be like, I don't know. Ezekiel doesn't make any sense to me. There's a lot of wheels and thrones and I don't know. But Ezekiel 10 is absolutely essential for understanding Pentecost because when God's presence departs the temple in Ezekiel 10, the people of God are, in a sense, undone. No presence of God, no identity as a people of God. But the prophets foresee a return, don't they? That God is going to return and fill his house with glory once again. It's all throughout the prophets, this promise of God's return, the presence of the Spirit returning. And now we are prepared to apprehend the full meaning of of Pentecost, this fire that comes down. The ancient promises are fulfilled when Jesus sends the Spirit at Pentecost. Fire, the fire of God's presence descends not on a bush, not on a mountaintop, not in a temple made by human hands, but on followers of Jesus. People, reconstituting them as a people of God. Do you see what this means? Well, I mean, it means a million things, but let's start here. The Spirit filling that's happening on Pentecost, this is not an extra of the Christian life. This is not like an energy drink for a temporary boost of the Christian life. It's not something only charismatic Christians need or or clergy get or professional Christians get. The filling of the Holy Spirit is essential to the church's very being. The Spirit does not add an extra dynamism on top of the essence of the church. It is the essence of the church. The filling of the Spirit makes the church, by definition, the church. We are the people of God, not basically because of what we do here on a Sunday morning. We're the people of God because we've been filled by the Spirit, and God is present with us. Every believer, a burning bush. Each Christian is one who ascends the mountain of the Lord and, like Moses, comes down with a transformed, shining face. That's what it means to be a Christian. So we are the people of God, first and foremost, because God's presence is with us now, and in us now by his Spirit. So when Jesus says, I am with you to the end of the age, he has Pentecost in mind. Pentecost is a one-time event, yes, but it's a continuing reality because the Spirit is here now among us. And this is why, by the way, our worship looks a little different. This is why our worship must be a joyful and robust engagement with the presence of the living God in our midst. If you think about the shape of our liturgy, let's think about it for a second. Moses ascends the mountain. That's us processing in. Like I said before, we would all process in if we had the time. We just do it representatively. We are ascending the mountain of God together. Then Moses receives the law, the words of God, as we read and preach the scriptures. That's why one of the first things we do is receive the words of God together. And then Moses and the elders, what do they do eventually? They feast with God on the mountaintop, don't they? Do we not feast with God here on the mountaintop? And then, like Moses, we process down the mountain transformed, shining with his glory, recessing into the world. So Pentecost makes us the people of God. And what else? Would you pause here for a moment and and look around at one another? Go ahead and look around at one another. Look at people whom you love. Look at people who challenge you, not too obviously. Just (laughs) (laughs) Look at people who are old and young. You are looking at a burning bush. You are looking at a temple of the living God. 
You are looking at those who have been filled with the Spirit, sons and daughters of God, who now cry with you, Abba, Father. Brothers and sisters, glorious beings animated by God's eternal fire. So, what? Forgive one another. Bless one another. Serve one another. Encourage one another. Outdo one another in good deeds. Be generous with one another. And while we're at it, look at yourself. Christians, you are a temple of God. You are full of His glory. So be kind to yourself, would you? We are a people of wind and fire, filled by His powerful, fiery presence. That's the new wine. So Pentecost means new wine. It also means, it means a new people of God. Some of you endured my quite long note this week, reflecting on one of my heroes, Tim Keller, and, and the church, where I note that I've listened to, to hundreds and hundreds of his sermons. Sometimes I honestly cannot tell like, what's coming from my inner Keller catalog and what's original, but I do know if it's like a really, really good point, it's likely his. And this one, this one is. Both, I mean, it's a, it's a really good point, and it's, most of it comes from him. Why does God send his spirit when all the diverse nations are gathered at Pentecost and do this miracle of tongues and and languages? Here's why. Because there is no language and therefore no culture that has precedence over any other in the Christian faith. So he quotes Laman Sané at at length. Laman Sané was an African-American professor of history at Yale University. And he wrote a book called Translating the Message where he points out what, what all Muslims will tell you, which is that the Quran cannot, the Quran cannot be translated. Uh, as a former Muslim, Sané himself understands this well. As far as Muslims are concerned, God speaks Arabic. You can put the Quran in English, but it's no longer the Quran. If you want to hear Allah's word, you must hear it in Arabic. All other translations, they're not, they're not really translations. It's, it must be Arabic. But because of Pentecost, says Sané, when we translate the Bible, we do still have the Word of God. It can be English, it can be Spanish, it can be Chinese. It's the Word of God. Sané says more. He says that largely because of this, there tends to be a unified Islamic culture. Wherever you are, wherever you go, anywhere Islam becomes dominant, it takes the culture and it makes it unified with broader Islamic culture. But because of Pentecost, that's not true for Christianity. Christianity is the most culturally diverse religion on the face of the earth. Why? Because of Pentecost. There is no one language or one culture that is right. Christianity comes into every culture, every culture, and it seeks to both honor the culture and renew it. So African, European, Asian, when the gospel comes, yes, it lifts you a little bit out of alignment with some parts of your culture. So, for example, Americans we're challenged to follow a homeless man who died for his enemies, who who laid down his power and served minorities and outcasts. Now, to some degree, all cultures are judged by the gospel. They, They all have excesses, they all have imbalances, they all have God substitutes and idols. But, says Sané, if you're an African and you become a Christian, you don't become a European. Christianity does not steamroll culture. It invites incredible diversity. Why? Pentecost. All nations gathered. All nations filled with the Spirit. Sané goes on to say it's not just other religions that are less diverse than Christianity. It's, it's also secularism, which is less diverse. It's a really interesting point. He says, look at African culture, for example. To be an African is to believe that the world is spiritually alive. 
There are good spirits, there are bad spirits. The world is spiritually alive. What if you are an African and you go to Harvard and you get a good Western education? What's going to happen? They will celebrate your, your culture, the way that you dress, your music, whatever, but, but they'll say they're not good spirits, they're not evil spirits, the world is not spiritual reality, everything is scientific. In other words, they will flatten your culture, your Africanness, but they'll say, we love your food. We want more of it here. Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans, yes, not remade Europeans. So Africans, this is Sane, Africans see the world filled with spirits. Christianity accepts the reality of the spirit world, but removes the tendency in African cultures towards superstition and violence because it shows Christ as the victor over all spirits, not through violence, but through love. So Christianity, says Laman Sane, himself an African, comes and renews culture, but leaves you in your culture. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, for all their talk of diversity, they will make you into a European. Now, if we had time, we could do this for every culture. I'm white, obviously, but in some ways, I've been pulled out of my white culture, and at the same time, I still am what I am, and that is still good. Luke drives this point home by spending a lot of scroll space on listing the nations present at Pentecost, with James, which James read very admirably. That was quite impressive. But did you notice? Why is he doing this? He's pointing us to a similar table of nations, isn't he? If you know the Old Testament, Genesis 10 and 11, and the story of Babel. At Babel, the nations are gathered in one language, and in pride, they try to, they try to build this tower to get to power for themselves. But how? what happens? God judges them. He confuses their language. Though they spoke one language, they couldn't understand one another, and they gave up. The lesson is obvious. Human pride, grasp for power, ultimately scatter and divide people projects, cultures. But on Pentecost, the exact opposite happens. Though they have many languages, they understand one another. They connect. Acts 1 and 2 reverse the curse of Babel. You see, at Babel, humanity ascends. Humanity builds this tower to ascend in pride, and God humbles them. What happens in Acts 1? Jesus, who had descended in humility to the cross, ascends in glory. Jesus' life is the opposite lesson of Babel. The way up is down. Humility and love, that's the only real way for people to connect across culture and language. And thus, the church should be, and in fact is, the most diverse institution on the planet. Consider our church, the Anglican Church. Last month, the Global Anglican Future Conference met in Kigali, Rwanda. A handful of people from, from our diocese made the trip. There were 1,300 delegates there, um, bishops, clergy, laity from over 50 countries represented at this conference. Ben Fisher, a fellow priest in our diocese, reported, he reported this. He said, Anglicans from, from every background were able to enjoy true fellowship over meals and prayer groups and workshops across cultural lines. That's the fruit of Pentecost. It's beautiful. Now, the Anglican movement in the United States, it has very deep roots, our movement in the global south, in Rwanda especially. The average Anglican today is a Kenyan woman in her 50s. Yet we hope and pray that this, this global diversity gets pressed down more and more into the American church, our church here. Because these relationships across cultural divides, marked by humility and marked by love, that's how the Spirit began the church. And that's, that remains God's great desire for the church. So Lord, make us increasingly reflect that reality.
And also, mostly, mostly white American Anglicans, we must be careful. We tend to be reserved, don't we? We tend to be intellectual, don't we? Other cultures tend to be expressive and emotional. Is one right and one wrong? No, we must be careful not to think that my kind of Christianity is real Christianity. No, 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 Pentecost. Every language, every culture. So Pentecost means new wine. It means, it means a new people. And lastly, it means a, a new Moses. I'll be more brief here. Acts 2 begins with these words, if you noticed, when the day of Pentecost came, meaning it was already Pentecost. In fact, the word came here could be more literally translated fulfilled. It's not the simple word for came. When the, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled, what was Pentecost before it was Pentecost? It was originally the Jewish festival of first fruits, celebration of the first wheat harvest. And this happened about 50 days after the Passover, the Exodus out of Egypt. And it came to be understood by the Jews that this festival of Pentecost coincided on the same day that, that God gave Moses the law on Sinai. Thus, Jerusalem was now thronging with visitors who were there to remember what? Who were there to remember and celebrate the fiery glory of God's presence on Sinai and Moses mediating between the people of God and God himself. And so when you go and read that story, and you read about Moses, the people are begging Moses to go up the mountain alone. They're terrified. Moses, you've got to go mediate for us. But here, at this Pentecost, Jesus, yes, he ascends the mountain alone, but then what does he do? He sends the Spirit down the mountaintop to the people. And as a result of this glorious outpouring of God's Spirit, 3,000 people are baptized. They can't get enough. They want more. Why? Because the law of Moses exposed people, didn't it? The law of Moses exposed people. The gospel of the new Moses forgives and comforts and fills people. Disobedience to the law of Moses, what did it result in? Curses. What did this new Moses do but absorb the curses on the cross? See, he said about not just reversing Babel, but, but all curses, all corruptions, all sin and pride. And because this new Moses, this better mediator between God and man, took the curses on himself, we are now free from fear. We are now free to just delight in the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God and the fiery, glorious presence of God that no longer needs to be tucked safely and securely behind any curtains, but is now in us. That's what Pentecost means. It means a new wine, a new people, it points to a new Moses. And so let's end by asking, what do we do? That's what the crowds asked. What do we do then? Now, you might say, I don't feel like I'm boldly living and speaking about Jesus. I don't, I don't feel full. I don't feel like a burning bush. Well, remember, don't look within yourself. Look without. Look with trust at Jesus. What did Peter say to those listening that they ought to do? He says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Very simple, isn't it? And then verse 38, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So don't look within, look to him. Here's a question. Have you called on him? Have you called on Jesus to help you turn from your sin and towards allegiance in him and then be baptized into him? You are filled with the Spirit. Now, if not, why not now? If you're finding yourself wondering or, or desiring to turn towards Jesus, to be filled by this glorious creative power, Simple prayer to get you started. It's a classic. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. 
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Now, if you have believed and been baptized and you still feel kind of empty, listen, you are not empty, but everyone needs a little topping off now and again, yes? <laughs> Stick around for our Acts series. We'll be praying every week this prayer for the Spirit to fill us afresh and to fill us anew. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners and fill us afresh with your Spirit. My, do we need it. Now, the second service, we're going to be moving on to a baptism. And I just want to remind you of, of these words that Luke writes, Peter preaches, I should say. In verse 39, he says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. So, Lord, we, all of us, your children, help us to turn to you in trust and to be filled afresh this morning with your Spirit. This life-giving power that vivifies us for a life of purpose and love and sacrifice and mission. Father, I pray that in particular for those of us who are discouraged this morning, who are out of touch with your love and grace, who are feeling empty, I pray that this morning through the rest of our worship, through our songs, through the sacraments, you would fill them. You would fill them. We are so desperately needy for your power. We just don't have it in us. Would you give us your power in your life? Thank you for the gift of your spirit. It is our life. It is our light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.